You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. Welcome to Ukrainian Writers Speak. This is City Lights Live, our online reading series that began during the pandemic and which continues to feature the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums moving forward into the fall season. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. As is customary at the start of all of our events, I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and offer our respect. Tonight on City Lights Live, we celebrate the publication of a new collection of fiction titled Love in Defiance of Pain, Ukrainian Stories. It is published by our friends over at Deep Vellum Books, and it is edited by Ali Kinsella and Xenia Tompkins. So we're delighted to have the editors of the anthology with us, Ali Kinsella and Xenia Tompkins, reading excerpts, talking about the book, and um, really going into how this beautiful anthology was brought together. Ali Kinsella has been translating from Ukrainian for 10 years. Her published work includes essays, poetry, monographs, and subtitles to various films. She won the 2019 Kovalev Fund Prize for her translation of Taras Prokoski's Anna's Other Days. She received a 2021 Peterson Literary Fund grant to translate Vasily Makhno's Eternal Calendar. She holds a MA in Slavic Studies from Columbia University, where she focused on Eastern European history and literature. She's received numerous honors for her work and has translated many texts. Um, joining her tonight is Xenia Tompkins. Xenia Tompkins is an American of Ukrainian descent who began translating Ukrainian literature in 2015 after 15 years experience in education, academia, and the private sector. She holds graduate degrees in Middle Eastern languages and literatures from Columbia University and Islamic studies from the University of Virginia. She is a past recipient of numerous fellowships from the likes of the U.S. Department of State, U.S. Department of Education, National Endowment for the Arts, amongst others. Her translations have been supported by grants from the Ukrainian Book Institute, the House of Europe, and the Peterson Literary Fund, amongst others. So please join us now in giving a warm welcome to Ali Kinsella and Xenia Tompkins. Welcome to City Lights Live. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Thank so you I, I'd like to begin just by kind of, you know, talking a little bit. I mean, this is such an incredible anthology. I mean, there's so many amazing writers, and it just shows the, the scope of how, how rich you know, a literary fabric, you know, Ukraine has. And did you already have an idea going into this of, you know, what this anthology was going to be? Or, or did you feel overwhelmed at any point just looking at this <laughs> massive, amazing work? The, 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 there was a whole lot of crazy in those first few weeks. So the, this very much, um, we never planned on an anthology. Allie and I have been working together for a few years. Um, I launched a nonprofit a few years ago to promote Ukrainian literature, found Ali and went, ooh, we can run with this. And so we've been quietly working with a network of authors and a network of translators for, at this point, four years. And then the invasion happened. And all of a sudden, there was just so much attention that we weren't quite sure how to respond. And one of our other board members, um, she got an email from Boris Reluk at 
uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, who had gotten an email from Ross Buchberg, who's a, a former, uh, the, or the co uh, one of the co-founders of New Vessel Press, saying, hey, we should do an anthology. And I mean, we're, we're all in, you know, some of the translators we work with are in Ukraine. A lot of the authors we work with are in the middle of considering enlisting. They're fleeing Ukraine with families and kids. And we're looking at this like this is an absolutely crazy idea. I think the whole decision to, to do this happened within 48 hours. And there was just, you know, crazy emails flying around um, of who's available to do this. Of course, someone emails Deep Bellum, who's Deep Bellum has published a number of Ukrainian authors in recent years. They've very much been a press that's committed to promoting Ukrainian literature. Um, and when we had a publisher that was like, yeah, let's publish an anthology. And we're like, how quickly do you want to do this? And the timing of it was, this was literally two weeks after the invasion. And they, the New York Times was writing an article about our collective of translators. And we knew it was going to run in three days. And we're like, do we want to announce it? I mean, we have a piece coming out in the New York Times. Let's announce it. So we came up with the title and then they put it in the New York Times. And we're like, okay, we got to do this. How do we do this in six weeks now? <laughs> um, so... Allie was very much, you know, carrying the weight of the editing duties. Um, I think my only role was to kind of come up with a list of, okay, here's pieces that we could use by authors that we could use by, you know, a variety of translators. We wanted to showcase, tr showcase translators and authors at the same time, but it, it all moved very, very, very fast, like blur, <laughs> blur fast. And I would also add that, uh, Zanya has a, what's the proper adjective? A thick Rolodex, uh, a, a bountiful Rolodex. And so she was really instrumental in um, making the connections and knowing who held the rights to what and knowing the people, the right people to talk to at various publishing houses. Um, and so she did a lot of behind the scenes work. And then our third co-editor, Ross, who, who Zanya already mentioned, he was, um, he was actually very important in that he didn't look at the original text. So he just kind of edited as a, an American reader of English, even though he does speak Slavic languages. And he was able to say like, this doesn't sound right. Whoever translated this was being too true to the original. And that was uh, like a very important voice to have because otherwise I think um, with a project that was so rushed and had, what do we have? 16 different authors and 13 different translators. Um, that yeah. and we, we commissioned a translation too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I don't think I would put together an anthology like this again. <laughs> <laughs> not, um, definitely not in six weeks. As everyone listening, um, I'm sure, already has the book, you, you know that the pieces are pretty different thematically, but the main thing they have in common is that they're, um, they're by Ukrainians. And, and that's also a strength of the book because it shows the breadth of work coming out of Ukraine. Um, since its independence. Most of the pieces are more recent, but some reach back to the very early 90s. Um, and then another like logistical point that was important was that almost all of these pieces had already been published. So we knew they were basically polished and that saved us a lot of time. Yeah. So the anthology was co-published by Deep Bellum Press and TALT, which is a nonprofit that I started with Ali and you know some other translators I found um, a few years ago. Um, and, and that's Al, what Ali was referencing was that we had spent, I had spent the last few years with Tald. Basically what happened was I translated my first novel, spent two years trying to find a publisher and getting the book published. And went, oh, this is a 
horrible process. There's got to be a better way to do this. But there was so little interest in Ukrainian literature. This came up in an interview a few weeks ago for me where I was kind of processing out loud of, I really think that the world in large viewed Ukraine as some cultural backwater of Russia and didn't realize that it's a separate culture, that it's not just some kind of, you know, whatever leftover. Um, because when I look back now at how, how we struggled to get attention um, from publishers, from journals, um, you know, every time a journal would respond to us, it was like, Ooh, someone's interested in something we'd go through eight rounds of sending stories and then in the end they wouldn't publish anything you know they're, they're really you know and and ukraine is the size of france it, it's 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 a huge geography so the, there really has been something off in terms of western perceptions of ukraine and and how people have just kind of ignored it but there was a shared desire between me and ali and um will evans the publisher of deep bellum and ross Uckberg. Uh, the uh, our third editor to just people are going to want to know something about Ukraine and they're going to want to know something about Ukraine beyond what CNN is feeding them and BBC is feeding them and the Guardian is feeding them and MSNBC is feeding them who are these people like who are these people that have all of a sudden showed up in the news so when we were choosing the stories for me a lot of it boiled down to we were looking for a breadth of authors in terms of age so we have authors that were you know coming coming of age as writers in the 80s, um, in the early 90s. We have some very young authors in the anthology. We were looking for a variety of genres. We were looking for a variety of topics. Um, and it kind of feels a little hodgepodge, a little like a kaleidoscope when you put it all together. But when you read the whole collection, it, it was kind of a bizarre process for me because I wasn't involved in the hands-on editing. I was handling more of the logistics of the anthology. So when we, you know, when we hit galleys and then I was reading the whole thing start to finish, I was like, whoa, this, this is kind of, there's a lot in here. Um, I think that's the point. You know, I, I, I keep noticing in the news when people comment that, you know, they've driven across Ukraine and it's a huge land. It is a huge land. And there's a lot of diverse subcultures in, in that one huge culture. And we're, I think we've successfully caught some of that in the anthology. So, and because it is such a buffet, you can just kind of pick and choose what you like. And if there's something that really <laughs> appeals to you, um, a lot of these authors have books that are already out in English or about to come out. And that was another thing that we wanted to do. We wanted, um, not that it was a, you know, we weren't, you know, stumping for them, but we, we wanted to be able to um, promote them in this sort of, you know, collective way and then give readers as well the opportunity to dive deeper into their work. When you read it, it's very much like, a, oh, I like this one. I like that one. And we were coming up with a list and about, I think half the authors have books available in English already. You've never heard of them because they were published by teeny tiny presses because nobody else was really interested. Um, a lot of them have books forthcoming in the next year or two. So, you know, if, if, if something, if someone is resonating for you, you know, definitely keep an eye out for them. Um, Go ahead, Peter. Um so obviously one of the themes of the anthology uh, was war. And it, you know, it had almost nothing to do with us because uh, we weren't commissioning these stories. We were just taking what was available. And I think most people realize this by now, but Ukraine has been fighting this war since 2014. And you can't be Ukrainian or live in Ukraine or visit Ukraine and not realize that. Um, so the, we had plenty of war stories to choose from, um, unfortunately. And 
I'd like to read a short excerpt. This is actually, um, this is the only novel excerpt in our collection. We really wanted everything to be self-contained, but we, we failed. Um, so this is from a novel called In God's Language, and it was written by Olena Stashkina. Um, Olena Stashkina is somewhat notable uh, for being a Russian speaker who switched to Ukrainian. So many Ukrainians, as many of you probably know, speak both Russian and Ukrainian. Um, but most people speak only like one language more than the other. There is a blended language that's usually called Surjik. Um, it has no rules, it's sort of lawless, and um, no one writes in that really. So you don't you won't find any Surjik literature. Um, but Stashkina switched to only writing in Ukrainian. So her last novel was her last novel in Russian was published in 2018, and her novel that was published in 2021 was in Ukrainian. And that I believe will be coming out from Harvard in 2024, if I'm not mistaken. The translation was just handed in five days ago. It's scheduled for mid 2023, I think. Okay, so that was translated very quickly. Um, and oh, this translation was by Julian Blecker. Blecker, yep. and um, he translated this from Russian. This is one of uh, this is post-2014, pre-2021. Um, and Yuliam is uh, pretty prolific as a translator. He has a novel coming out with Harvard as well. Um, by It's an old like 1920s or 30s Ukrainian novel that will be appearing in English for the first time. It's called The Something Adventures of... I can't remember. I, I will look it up. Okay. It's a very cool cover. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fun novel. I've read parts yeah. of it. Okay. Uh, oh, so some background for this. The um, main character, the, his name is Ravaza, and he. there are two people here. He's um, trying to help his ex-wife or his ex-lover, I'm not sure, find her current husband. Ravaza called her landline. Over the last 20 years, only the first numbers, the city code, had changed. There had been two digits, now there were three. The number of landline users had clearly gone up. What's happened? They've taken my husband. They want money. I think they've killed him already. I can just feel it somehow. Her voice was dull, her intonation resigned. Everyone had already learned to live in that resignation. And it was more or less clear that if not now, then tomorrow, it or they would come for us, for them. And you knew you should run away, but it was too late. There was nowhere to go, no strength left, no faith that beyond the checkpoints there was actually a horizon, and not just more tulpan rocket launchers spewing their bloody mess all around. I'm on my way, said Ravazov. I have connections. He gave a bitter laugh at these words and left. The taxis, unlike the trolley buses, which were reliant on electricity, were running efficiently. Ravazov recalled against his will his son's former history teacher, who is now working for them the unwelcome, shapeless, toothless, giggling apparition, wearing its pince-nez, looking just like Varia. The image of his face kept crawling its slimy way into Ravazov's head, and just as the mythical seafarer couldn't escape Eolus, Zephyr, and his other companions, Ravazov couldn't get rid of this picture. Ravazov arrived at the, arrived at the local administration building, not occupied by them, and spent a long time searching for the historian, wondering how this drunk had managed to carve out his new career selling human beings for peanuts. In the office marked Smarsh, 
They said that the historian was now a colonel in the interior ministry, but in the interior ministry, they were pleased to inform Revaza that the historian had become a general, only now attached to the public prosecutor's office. Nervasov didn't know if he could handle a meeting with the marshal, but the prosecutor's office relieved this worry, informing him, your friend has been transferred to agricultural work. Nervasov wanted to ask, where to, Central Asia? From what he could remember of Soviet life, any kind of agriculture was a demotion. And the warmer the locations to which the party dross was punted off, the more humiliating the demotion. Having to earn your crust by hard work was a bitter pill to swallow for those who'd made their names breaking fingers and knocking out teeth. He eventually found the historian in the Ministry of Transport. The office had no windows and several other ministers of some description sat in the adjoining reception area. It stank of toilets and cabbage pies. Everyone here looked despondent and out of sorts. You could feel that their revolution was over, that it had taken to drink from grief. Now it was wandering around somewhere nearby, its face blue and swollen, and the historian and his colleagues had to concentrate hard to respond to its dirty hints. They ruined the transport system. It's a wreck. Can't even find a decent railway car or cattle truck to send all the filth off to Siberia, the historian grumbled and muttered something about himself, about his bitter fate and the vicious battle against the private minibus drivers, about the time before the Gregorian calendar was introduced, about the outdated methods of collecting taxes from the fat cat taxi drivers. He muttered, yelled, and fell silent by turns, as though pausing sometimes to listen to someone answering him. Above his desk hung a portrait of Givi, the one-time parking attendant at Donetsk's covered market, who was today a marshal of the United Armed Forces of the South of Russia. I have to find someone, said Ravazov. Eh, the prices have gone up. I have to go through middlemen now, and that costs more, the historian said gloomily. Find out if he's alive. I won't pay for a dead man. You will. No avoiding it. Fucking intelligentsia. Don't want to have to bury your friend in a ditch, eh? Well, just you wait. The historian threatened Ravazov with his index finger. Ravazov thought the teacher looked like a cartoon dinosaur. Big body, small head, and tiny little hands with little sausage fingers. Although dinosaurs didn't have sausages or fingers. And as Ravazov looked at him, it struck him that he'd be able to kill not only strangers, but also this guy, real, familiar, harmless, his son's old teacher. His heart started racing again, and Ravazov only now understood for the first time that the historian looked like Beria. But could Beria really be similar to a dinosaur? That's the excerpt. So, um, Xenia, I'm just curious. Um, you both have like different backgrounds, but you're you seem equally steeped in in the literature. And I was wondering, like, as as you were, you know, kind of because what's been going on there, like you said earlier it has been happening for a while now i mean you know mm -hmm. and then when crimea was invaded i mean you know it just like it really ramped things up but as as you've been kind of going through literature and stuff like that i mean has it changed your view of what's happening there i mean has the literature itself kind of given you a perspective on you know kind of just the way that the news is covered in this country i mean do you feel like there's some kind of a a reverberation that way for you due to the literature? I don't get, I don't consume my news about Ukraine from this country. I think that might be part of the problem. Um, so 90% of my, I, I use Facebook as a social networking tool for the Ukrainian literary scene. So 90% of the news I consume is in Ukrainian from people in Ukraine. 
Ukraine. Um, the weird thing for me has been that I started translating in 2015, I think, a, a total lark was not anything I was planning on doing. My husband joined the, the uh, diplomatic corps, the foreign service. I had to quit a job and I was like, oh, what am I going to do now in Central America? I know I'm going to translate a novel. And I, and I started with the Tajik. This isn't going to be good. I need to, you know, so, so I, I grew up Ukrainian speaking in the diaspora. And I started translating in 2015. And I remember very distinctly, we were living in Guatemala and really following the news in 2014 when the invasion happened, just not believing what I was seeing. I mean, this was like the horror, the worst horror stories that as a kid in the diaspora of Russia invades Ukraine, you know? And it's been weird because the way I've accessed Ukraine, Ukrainian literature has been by getting to know, like I, I tend to get very, I'm very hands-on involved in the logistical aspects of, of Ukrainian literature. So I've spent most of the last few years trying to teach Ukrainian authors how to network with translators, what their chances are of getting published in what language, you know, trying to, try to you know, help Ukrainian publisher act publishers access foreign markets. And my, my relationship with Ukrainian literature is very personal with the authors and the publishers. And then it's almost like the literature for me is secondary. I think Ali's relationship is the opposite. You know, she, she's my impression after, you know, a few years of being friends with Ali is that for her, the book is primary. And then the author is secondary. If I don't like the author, I'm not going to read the book. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm very much that kind of person. Um, but it's been a, a, a a very personal experience in the last six months. So many things that I've read over the years from Ukrainian literature all of a sudden resonate so differently now seeing what's going on. Um, but as I you know, think about things that I've translated or I've read, I'm also thinking this would never get written again. You know, Ukraine has changed so much. Ukrainians have changed so much. I'm going to read a short quick clip for you from... This is like a paragraph and a half, just, you know, be ready. Um, this is from the opening story of Atem Chapai's The Ukraine. And we actually, the, the, we don't have, so we pulled the title from, um, for the anthology from his story, Love and Defiance of Pain. The story is about him and his, um, a partner, can't, you know, it's not quite a spouse, so a significant other, and they're traveling around Ukraine and he's describing their relationship with Ukraine. And it starts with, she and I converged on a solemn love for our country. A hate love, some might say. A love with a dash of masochism, I used to say. A love in defiance of pain, she used to say. And that was how she and I loved each other too, through pain and a bit frantically. So in the story, you learn that this partner of his has a chronic illness. And at some point in the, you know, I was, I was looking through, um, looking over the stories to, to pull excerpts to read. And this, this paragraph, I was wondering, he would never write this again. Um, and so I'm gonna be translating this whole story collection for a press starting in two weeks. So I'm, I'm, I'm rereading it actively and revisiting it. Artem is a good friend of mine. He's now enlisted. He enlisted two weeks, I think after the invasion, his wife and two sons fled Ukraine. He's seen them once in the last six months. Um, it was kind of an illegal visit where his army buddies had to cover him so that he could actually see his own kids. Um, and I, I text with him probably two, three times a week. Our relationship has completely changed in the last six months. But I remember I translated this two, two years ago. He was going to be reading at an international festival and he needed something in English to read. So I was like, oh, let's take your best story and let's translate it. 
And I remember crying when I translated this two years ago. And now I'm reading it thinking no Ukrainian author would ever write this again. So he's referencing this partner of his. For the two of us, the booming talk of official patriots about their, quote, love for Ukraine that you hear everywhere, that talk was pompous and stilted, hackneyed, and above all, it was what the Russians called mushla, passe, tacky. Or if you prefer English, it was lewd. Paraphrasing an American saying, she used to argue that patriotism was like a penis. Irrespective of its size, it's not a great idea to go waving it around in public. Choral singing and walking in formation, shadavade, the bright-colored ballooning pants of the Cossacks, and everyone on the same day sporting traditional embroidery on shirts and even plastered on cars, waving flags on sticks, or better yet, flying the biggest flags possible, and tridents on chests. It was all a pretentious demonstration, a showy show. It was an aesthetic on the same level as putting up a billboard beside the road with a picture of your beloved holding a Photoshop bouquet and the caption, Natalka, I love you, you're taller. Only in this case, it was done collectively. Natalka, looky here at how you arouse our patriotism. It was group exhibitionism. Sincere feelings don't need megaphones. Love is quiet, barely audible. It's in the comma and in the reiteration. I love her so, I so love my poor Ukraine. Today, I almost let out a sob when I came upon this line. In defiance of pain, a bit frantically, tenderly, acutely, with a fear of loss. In love, the imperative is acceptance. That's what I feel every time I'm interacting with one of these authors. <laughs> Still cry two years later. But it's not something that they would ever write again because those symbols are what's carrying them now. It's not showy show now. It's not ostentatious now. It's what's keeping them going on a daily basis. You know, I've had a number of authors, sorry. <laughs> um, I've had a number of authors talk to me in recent months about what do we write about after this? I have one of the uh, authors in the anthology, Tanya Malichuk. Um, she has two stories in the anthology. Um, started writing a very powerful novel about the Holo de Mar. The Holodomor is the um, Stalin's man-made famine in the early 1930s. And when you, I keep thinking about, when you look at um, novels about World War II, there are so many of them. And the only way I can understand it is humanity trying to make sense of what went on in the 1940s. I know of one novel about the Holodomor written in Ukrainian, and it's not very good. No, two. I think there was another one that was written about six months ago. So this would have been the first notable work about the whole of the mod where an author is trying to process what her parents and grandparents lived through. She abandoned it after the invasion and said, I can't write about that anymore. How can I write about that when this is what my family and friends are living through? Um, sorry, I veered on a tangent quite along the way. <laughs> um, I don't remember what the question was. <laughs> I remember the question. I, similarly to Zvinia, I don't get my news about Ukraine from the US generally. Uh, I also have not been following the news very closely. Um, I think I kind of reached a breaking point and it's very painful for me to read about. Um, and so, yeah, I've sort of like buried my head in the sand a little bit, but I, I will say that um, I think when you read Ukrainian literature, um, because it's a way of immersing yourself in a culture, right? If you if you can't go there and spend many years or even months 
among the people and really get to know them. Like literature is a decent stand-in. Um, and so in that sense, I think reading Ukrainian literature can lead you to adopt or at least understand Ukrainian sensibility and um, mentality, which is a popular word in Ukraine, mentalist. Um, <laughs> and just like as an example, and I, this is maybe a terrible example because like I said, I haven't been following the news that closely, but I will say when I heard that, that uh, oligarch's daughter died in Russia, she was killed by Putin, like instantly. It, like, and everyone I talk to in Ukraine believes that. And I don't think that's been on the news because obviously there's no, there's no proof. Um, and that would be a pretty major accusation to level. Although at this point, you know, I feel like no holds barred. Um, but that is probably, I think most Americans wouldn't jump to that conclusion. And I could be wrong, right? Um, because the idea that the rules would be so distorted and like so violated is, is hard for us to understand. Um, and Ukrainians, they're shrewder because they, they've been around this, this block before. Um, and so, which is not to say that like, you read our book and you will like crack the code of the war and you will like be able to understand Putin better than the New York Times, but um, it will hopefully, um, you know, I think that you, this, this kind of is something that Zinia was talking about earlier. Um, Zinia, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I work with a poet called Zvina. I know. <laughs> the names are very similar, and I, I, I apologize. Okay. Um, that, um, what was I saying? Oh, that I've been like translating from Ukrainian for a long time, and it's very difficult to convince people why they should listen. And my argument unsuccessfully was always that Ukrainians have something to tell the world because Ukrainians have um, a very recent experience of totalitarianism, and they have like come out the other end. And as democracy falters, I think that Ukrainians are um, people that we should listen to more closely. I think it also, you know, reading an anthology like this, and pro probably more so than reading a novel, because when you're reading a novel, you get into the fictional characters. You know, here, you're, you almost get overwhelmed by the myriad voices of different authors. Um, talking, they become people for you. These Ukrainians become people for you. And I think that's really important. And that's part of what, what, what was kind of driving us in, in let's go crazy and try to do an anthology in six weeks. The world needs to visualize and feel Ukrainians as people, not just as some political entity that we've kind of more or less been oblivious to or ignored or, um, I, I feel like I'm on the extreme of that. Uh, it's, it's relationships that drive my work with translation. Um, but I think that's, there's again, it's, it's, it's kind of a personal desire on my part for other people to see them as people. Ukraine, I've had, uh, Will Evans, the publisher of Deep Bell, and actually pointed this out to me a few weeks ago in a, in, in a phone conversation. He was surprised at just the amount of attention Ukrainian authors have been getting in the last six months. And I pointed out that, you know, my response to him was, I think Ukraine is still one of the few cultures where authors are viewed as the intelligentsia. There's a consensus in the, in, in the country and in the community that yes, you can speak on our behalf. We trust you to speak on our behalf. We have nothing close to that left in the US. I don't know if we ever did, but it's it's, it's a two-way consensus of, of you've got Ukrainians pushing these authors ahead saying, 
Um, you know, there's a lot of authors that are getting leave from being enlisted. Um, there's this, you know, the government rule that with martial law that um, men between 18 and 16 aren't allowed to leave the country unless you're an author or a musician that can tell the world about us. They're, they're allowed to leave the country. So, so there, there is a, there is a two-way consensus of we can, we can tap that to, to help them, you know, help humanize Ukrainians for us. Um, and, and the average Ukrainian it seems very happy to push these people ahead. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a lot happening in Ukrainian culture right now. You know, I, I sometimes feel subconscious just getting involved in these conversations because I'm like, ah, I'm an outsider, I'm diaspora. I don't even view myself as diaspora. I'm, I'm an American first and foremost. I've got some Ukrainian blood, big deal. My kids speak Spanish, like whatever. Um, but one of the things that has jumped out at me in, we had three authors in the anthology that were translated from Russian, um, which, which it seems like an appropriate ratio of three out of 15 or 16. Um, all three of those authors have now switched to writing in Ukrainian um, in the last one. So two in the last six months, they're both enlisted, Oleg Sensov and uh, Stanislav Aseyev. Um, it was like poof, within two weeks of the invasion, every Facebook post was in Ukrainian. Stanislav Aseyev uh, has written essays for Western media that you know the first one needed editing, um, but he was on a mission, that's it. I'm done with this language. Syashkina, um, uh, the the excerpt that Ali read, the novel that followed this in God's language, it's getting published by Harvard University Press next year sometime. She actually went through that process as she was writing the novel where she starts in Russian. And as the novel is progressing, she switches into Ukrainian. And I don't know how they're gonna do this. I almost think you have to do an italics normal font because she's alternating languages at point in the novel. Um, it's not an easy process. I cannot fathom trying to write, you know, my Ukrainian's fairly fluent. Yeah, you don't want me writing Ukrainian. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult transition. There's another author that's also, so as a total aside, Harvard University Press has started a fantastic series of modern Ukrainian literature. Um, they had started it about a year and a half ago, and they've just kind of gone haywire with it. Um, since the invasion, they've gotten donations. There's a lot of, some of these authors are getting published by Harvard in the next year. Um, but yeah, it, you know, there, there's, you kind of see in, in the authors and what they're talking about, it's, it's what Ukraine as a country is grappling with some of the stuff. You know, this might be a good time to focus a little bit more closely on the language issues, since I think a lot of people um, often raise this question. And um, I, I would say that I've kind of answered it the same way over the last 10 or 15 years, but I feel like I have more, more support this time around. Um, and that is that, you know, of course, languages are innocent, right? But, uh, but they're used, they don't exist in a vacuum. And, and so they're used with uh, the force of a culture and often an army behind them. And so it is, um, yes, you, there are Ukrainians who speak Russian, lots of them, in fact. Um, Ukrainians aren't born speaking Russian, though they learn it. And just like, you know, everyone, they were forced to learn it for about 70 years of their, you know, existence as a colony of Russia under the Soviet Union. And so it's, it's marked from the get-go as um, an instrument of power that's being exerted on a people. And so can, can Russian be spoken uh, 
valuelessly in, in Ukraine? Absolutely not. But it can't be, no language can be spoken anywhere without value, I would argue, um, or without some implicit values. Um, and it's just, so it's a matter of what are those values when one speaks Russian in Ukraine. And I think that those values are being reconsidered. Um, and so I have very close Ukrainian friends who speak Russian as their first language, but they, there's this, um, I don't want to speak about them specifically. I want to make this less personal, but there, there is a trade-off that you make, right? When you align yourself with a particular culture, and in this case, it is a culture of imperialism. And I would argue that English is also an imperialist language and speaking English in, um, you know, any place where it's been imposed on people, you, you do so as a colonizer. And, and so Russian in Ukrainian is the same. And does this mean that someone whose native language is Russian and can best express themselves in Russian shouldn't speak Russian to their child, but should be forced to switch to a non-native language. No, absolutely not. It's just that, um, you know, all of these things matter and, and you can't pretend like Russian is value neutral. And then also, you know, up until 2012 or 13, there were almost no books being published in Ukraine because there was like an economic stranglehold. There were no tariffs on books imported from Russia. It was much cheaper to translate a magazine into one language instead of two. Um, so why bother? So the all of these issues, there, you know, there's money behind them, there's there's power there, and to argue otherwise is is to be wrong, <laughs> essentially. So when we talk about people switching to Ukrainian, it, it matters. These are these are big choices. Um, and it also matters to read people translated from Ukrainian and not not from Russian. You know, Oksana Zabushko is a, is a very famous Ukrainian writer. We have a story of hers in the collection. And if we have time, we might get to an excerpt, but she's alone. Um, and her novel, her, her big novel, it's called Fieldwork and Ukrainian Sex. It was written in 1996. And at some point it, she claimed it was the best selling ever Ukrainian novel. It, that might be the case. I don't know. It had gone through like 15 or 16 um, pub editions. It was translated into English in 2011 for the sum of $400, which is a pittance as I'm sure you realize. Um, and the publisher, Amazon Crossing, threatened the translator that if she didn't agree to their conditions, their terms, they would translate it from Russian. And she just couldn't stand for that, so she agreed. Um, but, but these yeah. things matter. If you get a, a, a Russian speaker who's not familiar with Ukrainian culture, things get distorted, uh, emphasis gets changed, and we have a different picture of, of a country being presented. Um, if it's we, we were... Sorry, we were careful in this anthology in choosing translators as well as choosing authors. Um, and we were, we were, you know, because of time, we were restricted um, to largely what had already been published or already been translated. Or, you know, I had some pieces lying around on my Google Drive that I never submitted anywhere. Um, but it, these were conversations that we had of which translators do we want to promote? Um, because there have been translators that have been loyally translating Ukrainian literature for years that could have been making a lot more money, could have been up for big prizes if they were translating from Russian. But Ukrainian literature just wasn't getting noticed by anybody. So this was a simultaneous push for, you know, we had one story, we, we had one author, she had uh, Oksana Lutsishina, she has a not very good novel coming out with Deep Bellum Publishing next year. 
that was already in the process of being translated. And we're like, Oksana, give us a story. We want to get you in this anthology. And then we also had one translator, a very promising translator in the UK that I just you know, found a year ago, who's 25 and learned Ukrainian in Cambridge. We were like, we want to get her in the anthology. So we're like, Daisy, you got to stop and translate. But it, it was about, you know, part of it was, was about kind of, we don't need to compromise. We, we don't, for the first time, Ukrainian authors and Ukrainian translators and those people looking to promote Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture as a whole don't need to compromise and rely on Christian contexts, um, which has been a whole new thing for the field of Ukrainian arts in general. If I may, I'm gonna switch tracks a little. I think we should get more readings in. Um, this is a short humorous, hopefully, excerpt from Serhii Jadan, who's uh, the golden boy of Ukrainian literature right now. And he's probably pushing 50, honestly, but he's a, a rock star and a poet and he's widely translated, uh, very popular in Germany. He's also from Eastern Ukraine. He was attacked in 2014, like pretty brutally beaten up by, because he was um, out supporting Ukraine um, in the Maidan at that time. And, you know, speaking of language, he's often said that in Eastern Ukraine, no one speaks Ukrainian. Well, they're wrong. Um, so this is called the first gay nightclub in Ukraine or the best gay first nightclub. Gay, the first the gay, gay bar. Fish gay bar the in Ukraine. And we'll just, I'll just jump in. The story about the nightclub was told to me directly by one of its founders. I had heard about it for quite some time, but I hadn't crossed paths with him, which isn't so strange considering the specifics of the establishment. Rumors of the city's first official gay bar had been circulating for several years. Various names and addresses were mentioned. And because no one really knew where it was actually located, every place was considered to be suspicious. The place where the nightclub was most often discussed was at the stadium. The city's right-wing youth staunchly condemned the appearance of establishments with such a profile. They promised to burn down this nightclub together with all the gays that gathered there for their so-called soirees. Once during the 2003-2004 season, they even burned down the Buratino Cafe, which is located right next to the stadium. But the police rightfully did not trace a connection between this incident and the existence of a gay nightclub. Because just think about it, what kind of a gay nightclub could be established in a Buratino Cafe, the name of which itself is xenophobic? On the other hand, the nightclub was often mentioned in mass media outlets, in various chronicles of cultural events, or in features about the city's vibrant nightclub scene. Usually, stories in the city's nightclub scene recalled letters from the front lines. Television reports on the scene featured various toasts being announced, which were then followed by machine gun shots. And sometimes, if the cameraman didn't neglect his, let's say, professional duties, in other words, if he didn't get shit-faced off with a complimentary cognac, the machine gun shots would ring in unison with wedding toasts and parting gestures, and the pulsating bullets would poke holes in the warm Kharkiv sky, like a salute to faithfulness, love, and other things rarely seen on television. In this context, news about the gay nightclub was intriguing because of the lack of any clear picture or any mention concerning the direct ties between the government and criminals. It was just that there was a party, and it took place in a gay nightclub. The public behaved in a civil manner. There were no casualties. In any case, rumors about the nightclub kept spreading, but in reality, the wave of interest fell, which wasn't hard to predict from the start. Our city has much more exciting establishments, like the tractor plant, for example. And generally speaking, who's really interested in the affairs of sexual minorities in a country that has such substantial foreign debt? And even the fact that the nightclub, according to rumors, was part of the governor's racket, didn't create any special resonance. This is what they expected from the governor. Everyone, in essence, runs his own business. What's most important is a clear conscience and the timely submission of tax forms. 
Sansanich and I met during the elections. He looked like he was pushing 40, although he was younger than that. It's just that one's biography is stronger than one's genes, and Sanich was a prime example. He would walk around in a black squeaky leather jacket carrying a piece, a typical mid-level mafioso, if you know what I mean. Although for a mafioso, he was rather melancholic. He seldom spoke on the phone, occasionally calling his mother, and as far as I can remember, no one ever called him. He introduced himself as San Sanich when we first met and gave me his business card on which San Sanich Lawyer was written in gold letters on vellum paper, along with several phone numbers with London area codes. Sanich said that they were office phone numbers. I asked whose, but he didn't answer me. We became friends at once. Sanich pulled the piece out of his pocket, said that he is a supporter of free elections and mentioned that he could get a hundred of these pieces if necessary. He added that he has an acquaintance working for the Dynamo Sports Club who takes starter pistols and transforms them into normal guns in his home workshop. Look, he said, if you filed on this thingy, he was pointing to a place where obviously the thingy was once located, having earlier been filed down. You can load it with normal cartridges. And what's most important is you won't have any problems with the police. It's just a starter pistol, right? If you want, I can get you a set. It'll run you 40 bucks plus 10 more to file down that thingy. If necessary, I can sort you out with the Dynamo workers card to make it fully legit. Sanich loved weapons and he loved talking about them even more. In time, I became one of his closest friends. Um, I don't know if it comes across very well, but if you're like, you know, deep in Ukraine, uh, the idea that he'd have this like cheap business card with London area codes, everything is sort of questionable. No one cares that the nightclub is gay. They just want to make sure like, they're getting their cut. Um, that's sort of like the gist of the whole piece. Cause you know, Ukraine, um, especially when it was written in the early to mid 2000s, um, everyone thought that Ukraine was um, a pretty homophobic <coughs> and Ukraine has um, a ways to go, as do we all. But um, the crux of this story is that uh, no one actually cares. They just want to make money illegally. Zania, do you have any any comments, uh, reflections on that? Um, no, not really. Um, again, I, I think we just, I think we we actually, when I when I was rereading the whole thing, it felt almost a little schizophrenic, and we were all over the place. Um, but I think we've managed to catch. You know, Zidane is is an icon in Ukraine. Um, I, I met him once and all I could think is, God, he's short because the way, like his persona, you picture this six foot four guy, you know, like, um, but, you know, uh, Oksana Zabushka is the supreme literary intellectual in Ukraine. Um, Yuri Andukovich is, there's a whole generation of authors that came under him. He's in his early sixties. His, his daughter, uh, Sofia Andukovich is, is a hugely talented well-established author. Tanya Manichuk is another one. These, these, these authors were teens under Yuri Andrukovich. He was bringing them under their wing. Taras Prokashko is another one that was kind of involved in that, like, you know, raising other authors. So you kind of, you're seeing generations of authors in here. I, I, I made a comment in another interview recently of like, you know, the younger authors really write more condensed stories and the authors, the older authors write really long, elaborate stories, but you kind of see it all, you know, you see almost the development of like a snapshot, snapshot of the development of Ukrainian literature in this anthology. Um, so there's a little bit of, of you know, yeah, Jadon's a funny guy. He, he, he's got something about, he's a very enigmatic character, both in his writing and, um, and he writes off the cuff. He, he's a fantastic, he's a fantastically talented poet, but his, 
um, prose is often very funny and very off the cuff and very informal. But we also had a few stories in here that dealt with um, immigrant issues, um, which we weren't that was not pre-planned on our part. You know, there's two or three uh, immigrant stories, one that takes place in Western Europe and one that takes place in, um, in the U.S. Those are all facets of Ukrainian life right now. Um, so. Yeah, um, I'll give, a, I would like to give another example of what Tina is talking about. Sorry, Zanya. Tina's like. <laughs> it kind of sounds the same. Like, I'm talking to her all the time too. Um, was Daniel talking about with this, like these dense, compact, not compact at all, but packed in sentences. Um, and Jadon sort of bridges that gap between the, um, the younger generation that perhaps prefers brevity and these older, older writers. Um, this is um, Yuri Andrukovich and he was very famous in the early 90s, late 80s and then early 90s. He was part of a, a group of poets that called themselves Bubabu. And their whole thing was that they did a lot of um, they were kind of shaking things up. They were very funny. They were totally irreverent. Um, they, they did a lot of live poetry readings. And actually this is a, an interesting difference between the literary scene in Ukraine and at least in the US. Um, writers are often, they're always speaking publicly. Um, and that kind of gets back to what Zenya was talking about, writers being seen as public intellectuals um, in a way that they might maybe are not here. Um, so, you know, I've seen a lot of these people, they're immensely famous in their home countries. And I've, I've seen them read in person because they just do it all the time. Um, but this Bubabu, they, they were always doing performances and it was almost like um, scat poetry at times. Uh, and this, this sort of irreverence carries over into um, a lot of, or all of um, Andrukovich's writing, which could be compared to like maybe a more accessible pension. Uh, but, this is the, the, the very first two paragraphs of a story of his called Samilo or the Beautiful Brigand. Samilo, Samuel, Namirich, this inappropriately forgotten and prematurely extinguished shoot of the tree of our national banditry, attracts attention first and foremost for stylistic reasons. The style of his crimes is based on absolute freedom. Even the most frightening of the murders and robberies committed can be boldly described as executed with outstanding aesthetic sensibility and imparting an impression of free inspired creativity. The life of this Podilian petty nobleman, largely wasted in the 1610s in Lviv, has to this very day been largely ignored by our historiographers, despite their occasional executions. Indeed, what we encounter in Władysław Wojcicki's Pravam Levem, or to render it in Ukrainian, by sword and epistle, is written tendentiously. The author finds Nemirich unpleasant merely for not being Catholic and Polish. Besides, he hailed from the same Nemirich clan as Yurko Nemirich, the future colonel of the Cossack army, pitiless hero of the 1648-49 campaign, poet, philosopher, and heretic. In general, the Nemiriches often fairly willingly went over to Arianism, a trait characteristic not only of them, but also of such age-old Ukrainian families as the Pototskis, the Vishnevetskis, and the Tatomirs. Um, so there's like a lot of extraneous information. A lot of it is made up. You know, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that book is not real. Um, and he, it's, it's presented as this uh, historical account. He, he, it's very self-referential. On the next page, he talks about himself as the author of a famous book that this, this man can be read about in. Um, the book does exist, but, you know, he's not in it. It's, it's this like creating an imagined historical past in which Ukraine 
had a different role and that it, it's both to sort of re-envision what could have been and create a new future and also to sort of remind us that Ukraine is not properly remembered today, that Ukraine did exist in the past. These things, these places are real, even if the recombinations are a bit uh, fanciful, um, but that we're not talking about a country that only came into existence in 1991 or 2022 for that matter. Um, it's always been there. And especially the writers from Western Ukraine, they often are very Western looking in their works. Um, Andrukovich in particular often sends his main characters to Vienna, um, which was an important city in Western Ukraine in the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century, and other places in Europe. Um, as by way of saying, or as a way to say that, to lay, lay claim to these places as part of Ukraine's cultural like, patrimony as well, and not just a place Ukrainians hope to get visas to visit. That, that is one division now that, I, now that you mention it that does come up in the anthology of the authors that write about Eastern Ukraine versus the authors that write about Western Ukraine and the, and the authors that write about Western Ukraine, Snyadenko and Dukovic, both him, you know, Yuri and his daughter, Malichuk, um, they're very rooted. Malichuk's actually the, one of the only ones, but she has a grandmother from Eastern Ukraine and a grandfather from Western Ukraine. And so that kind of comes together in her writing. But I'm anticipating that's gonna change in the coming years. Um, I, I think Ukrainians kind of, there's been, there was this false comfort with Russia of, oh, they would never do anything like that. Um, and I think there's a lot of authors from Eastern Ukraine that are now going, okay, we, we, we were delusional in assuming that we could have the same kind of relationship with Russians to the East and Western Ukrainians to the West of us. So I think it's solidifying Ukrainian identity. Um, and I think that's going to come through in the, um, in the writing in years to come. But when you look at the anthology, you actually see a lot of kind of what Russia has been playing on in, in, um, in, in the last eight years um, in their war in Ukraine. Yeah, but I think Andrukovich was kind of Zhidan 20 years ago. He, he's also that kind of cool cat. Like. <laughs> I bet he wouldn't want to hear you say that. I bet he thinks he's Zhidan. No, I know, sorry. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll read some more. I mean, because this is so rich and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Zenia, do you want to read anything we have? Um, so I wanted to just because it, it, there are a lot of Ukrainian authors right now that are displaced. Um, what, what basically happened kind of within weeks of the invasion is the male and again, most of my, most of my friends in Ukraine are authors. So my kind of my, my knowledge of Ukrainian society is a little skewed there. Um, a lot of the men, so first they weren't allowed to leave Ukraine, but a lot of them went ahead and enlisted. And then the uh, women, especially the ones who had children, fled the border just to get their kids out because they didn't know where it was going to go. Um, so there, there's, there's an insane number of Ukrainians that are displaced right now. Um, the story I'm reading from is by Tanya Malachuk. I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. Um, she's writing about a Ukrainian who was living in Vienna. And basically that he's kind of, he's just a nobody. He's just part of the background scenery in Vienna. His name's Petra. Um, he had ripped his Ukrainian passport into little pieces and on a lovely sunny Sunday afternoon, throw, thrown them into the Danube. As he did so, Petra thought with a smile that a piece of him would return back home with the Danube waves before swallowing the first page of the passport for security reasons. 
Petra even spit in the water as if wanting to seal the magical ritual with his saliva. Then all he had left was a first name and a memory. The first name he needed for the multitude of days he no longer counted and the memory for the multitude of nights he lay awake. Petra dissipated among the foreigners and no one searched for him, not even the police. No one wanted to know what had happened to him. The old street car with the three steps up was replaced by a modern one. Twice there were devastating floods. Years pass quickly when you don't value your own life. That's, I mean, I'm seeing that in the news now. The, 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 just the kind of fatigue, the immigrant fatigue, and it's happening in places like Poland that were so um, supportive and embracing of, of, of Ukrainian immigrants. You know, we, we had a really unfortunate story. We had a journal reach out to us a few weeks ago. They wanted to do an issue on Ukraine. Ali wasn't involved in these conversations. Um, and they kept telling us, okay, but we don't want war writing. And they wanted nonfiction, fiction, poetry. They wanted a whole journal, uh, you know, journal about Ukraine. And we kept telling them, okay, then we have to go before 2014. And they kept saying, no, we want to know what Ukraine was before February 22. But it's, it's kind of like from the outside, people weren't even realizing that these people have been living a war. And part of it is, then, and a few of the stories touch on this, that, okay, they may not have been in the war zone but they're surrounded by displaced people all the time. You know, the fabric of every city in Ukraine has changed in the last eight years because there's all these people that have, you know, relocated. And again, some of these people are showing up as Russian speakers and they're not being embraced. And now there's a plethora of language support groups where you can go to practice your Ukrainian and everyone's going to support you if you're trying to speak in Ukrainian. That wasn't the case seven years ago. Um, so... Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot in this <laughs> anthology. You know, we, we really, we really picked the top names in Ukrainian literature. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And we were picking from among their best works. Um, so it, you know, it, it can be a little dizzying. I would actually probably recommend not to read it straight through, read it in little snippets, you know, um, um, potentially no. reread things, then go Google the authors and see if you're interested in something else of theirs. Um, but it really feels like kind of a kaleidoscope of, I mean, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge land. It's a, it's a rich and complex history that has been pulled in different directions over the centuries. So you're not going to get it in one sitting, you know? Uh, do we have time for one more excerpt, Peter? Yeah, uh, please, right. please do, yeah. We have, I'll let you pick, uh, since you're the only other person with a microphone. We have um, Oksana Zabushko, whom we've already mentioned. She was the one who has this very famous novel. Uh, I mean, they're all famous, but um, Fieldwork in Ukrainian In Ukraine, sex. yeah, they're all famous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Fieldwork in Ukrainian Sex is not included in our book at all, but I think it's important to talk about the theme, which is, um, it's a young woman who is struggling with, um, not ha she's she she's having a hard time finding a lover that she can accept that she uh, she she feels like she has to have someone with a Ukrainian identity because everyone else disappoints her in some way and all of the Ukrainians also disappoint her and so she's sort of trapped she can't find anyone to to satisfy her physical emotional mental and cultural needs all at the same time. Um, and so she, this is an excerpt from a short story of hers, which is outstanding. It's called Girls. And um, it's, a, it's very dense. 
she's from that very dense generation. Um, um, and it's about two preteens, teenage girls who are classmates. Um, and this other one is by an author called named Katarina Kalitko, and she won the BBC Literature Prize in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, for a collection of short stories that are all somewhat um, fantastical. There's there's a genre that I haven't quite put my finger on yet in Ukraine, but it's it's not quite magical realism, but it's it's similarly sort of um, I don't know plays with Ben's reality, and I I think that's sort of um, an understandable response to trauma. Um, and so this one is about a, a land that is sort of rising and sinking into the sea, depending on what's happening. It's sort of an enchanted land, but um, parts of the story, if you if you forget it, that the land is enchanted, so it's sort of mundane. And this also touches on war. So do you have a preference? Oh, you're muted, I forgot. <laughs> I, 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 you know what? Read both. <laughs> read both. Because you know, we uh, have time. And I, uh, I, I I'm just so digging this. Okay. Zaina, do you want to read one of them? Sorry, catch me up. I was typing to someone. Do you want to read either the girl? I'm I'm happy to read them both. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Read. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. So I'll start with I'll start with this. It's called Vera and Flora. Uh Vera and Flora. And we'll end with girls because it, it really packs a punch. Um and full disclosure, I translated this. <laughs> Ivan was the first newcomer who asked my real name, the first one who wanted to listen to my story, and he didn't laugh. He believed me and he knew that I wouldn't eat domestic fowl or their eggs or honey from the hives that the new people dragged here. And I wouldn't drink milk from under their ruddy cows. He said that he understood everything perfectly. I wouldn't absorb cosmogonic substances. I didn't understand his words and explained that it's no different from gnawing on the stalk of a worldly flower and drinking up its juice no different from cracking the heavenly egg, sucking up everything alive inside it, plus the sun for good measure. You can only eat what has separated from the beginnings of life, from the divisions that accompany the beginnings. Ivan smiled and said that he had approximately the same thing in mind. He fished in the river himself or bought fresh and salted fish from the sea people for me. He made sure they didn't have roe or milt. He brought game from the market. He couldn't call the falcons himself and I already knew this wasn't something you could teach. We gathered apples together, the first harvest he was in heavy sands for. When Yvonne first came to live with me, he was strange. I often heard him nervously pacing in his room at night, stomping loudly. He once forgot to close his door tightly and I saw for the first time how he unbuckled the straps and rested his artificial leg on the bed. Then he took a bottle of some clear liquid from his trunk, drew this liquid into another bottle, one with a needle, and then plunged this needle into his arm. And then he sat motionless for some time with his head thrown back, his lips utterly white. Ivan explained that the war took his leg. Officially, it was unjust because he was a doctor in a field hospital, not a soldier, but the war didn't ask. The war had lasted a few years all around the world and was so large that he couldn't believe I didn't know about it. Enormous and toothy, the war swallowed his leg and didn't even notice. It was nothing unusual. I had seen such wounds before. He also explained that the bottle with the needle was called a syringe and sticking it into his arm was an injection. The clear liquid in the syringe was called morphine and it helped equally with pain and memory. He had wanted to escape to a place where no one would stop him from poisoning his memory to the point of death. So here he was. I didn't ask him for any morphine. It wouldn't have helped with my memory anyway, but I thought 
Ivan knows and has lived through so much that I can tell my one secret only to him. Namely, how dad drowned the six settlers and then he and mom lay in the earth to sleep. And I often went around to the surviving houses. I touched their things, lay in their beds. Thus I grew accustomed to the wasteland and the new flow of time. In one hut thrown together helter-skelter by soldiers, I found a book, an enormous heavy book bound in calfskin with laces. It was damaged in a few places as though someone had tried to stab it with a knife. For some reason, I knew this was a book, even though I'd never seen one in my life. Mom and dad preserved their knowledge another way. I immediately recognized Yvonne's books as books. It was like I had always known they existed, just like the grass or birds or river. The book left behind was heavy, so I understood it was important. Otherwise, they wouldn't have hauled it to, the, to who knows where from their vanquished fortress, especially while they were carrying the wounded. I didn't take the book home, but I flipped through all the pages more than once. I remembered every symbol drawn in it, but I couldn't make sense out of anything because I couldn't read. It's a shame to be unable to comprehend what you believe to be important. So then Ivan got out his books and started showing me letters. Every day he showed me letters and taught me their names. When I memorized them all, he asked me to put them together. Next, he began underlining words printed in the books and speaking them out loud to me. Then I tried drawing a few of them myself. I dreamed of words. Letters sparkled and formed chimerical figures like bubbles in the green glass of the window pane. Finally, I could read slowly, touching each letter with my hand and helping myself by whispering. All at once, the pattern on the paper came to life and spoke to me. I didn't need to return to the abandoned house to the old book covered in shabby leather. I remembered it cover to cover. All the familiar words flashed in it, piled on top of each other like stones in a wall. Names, people, places. Heavy Sands had the most complete chronicle of the land of the lost, and all of it had taken up residence in my head. Wow. We were talking about this excerpt earlier today, and what jumped out at me was this book was written in 2017, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it won the most prestigious literary prize in Ukraine, the BBC Book of the Year Award, that you can, the most prestigious prize you can get for a single book. Um, Katharina Kalikko is a poet, and, and there's this weird jumping of genres that happens in Ukraine that I don't see in, in many other literary fields, where these huge, well-established adult novelists turn around and write a kid's book, and then they turn around and they write poetry. You know, Mukhnal was is a hugely prolific um, poet, that's all he wrote for 25, 30 years. And then he wrote a short story collection, won the top award in Ukraine for it, and then wrote a powerful novel. You know, they, they, it, 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 it's again, there's like this culture of we, we are the voice of the country and we talk through different mediums. Um, but with Kalivka, this is the most sought after short story collection. I've never seen translators fight <laughs> over a short story collection. There's been a lot of translators interested in this one collection. Um, and so it was written a few years ago. And my, my comment to Allie earlier today was, she's already grappling with how do we talk about this war? And she's moving into this kind of ethereal, you know, world to talk about it. And so all I kept wondering is what happens now? Like if that's where authors were going to try to grapple with the constant war around them a few years ago. What's left for them as an option, you know, to, to kind of, to communicate it. Um, yeah, she's, she's very, she, she has, a, she has a 
she's very eloquent feels like a very base word to use to describe her but you really feel the poet in her um when she's tackling um I think she um she doesn't rely on lots and lots of words to make her point she she chooses yeah. the words carefully and she's succinct and um yeah but in her ability to kind of push imagery and and you know so if you can all stand to listen to me read a couple more pages, I, I would love to share Zabushko's girls with you. That, that would be wonderful. And I, I was looking for, for questions in the q and I want to remind everybody, if you have any questions, now is a really good time to post. We have a couple little comments there. It just came through. But uh, but yeah, give us your questions, your praise, all of that. And please, let's, let's read one more. You know, um, before I start, there's this line at the beginning. OK, so. Um, I'm just very impressed by this translator. His name is Oswald Malinichuk, and he's a writer in his own right. He, um, he's founded a press, Aerosmith, and he publishes his own novels. Um, but he, the, the, main, the main character's object of interest, her name is Olena in Ukrainian, and a, the word for a deer is Olein. And so the author plays with this and um, he figured out how to do it in English. And so I'll just read that line before I jump into the, um, into the, the excerpt. So the author or the main character is describing this new student. She had the disproportionately long, instead of Brock Modigliani, neck of a wary fawn, fee, fi, fo, fawn, chanted the other girls, but Darka couldn't bring herself to say it. The fawn was simply Effie and none other because those, these slopes and angles, lines pushed to the breaking point suggested something else entirely. And I, I hate to make the comparison because I'm so, so, so done with Russia, but this really reminds me of the opening of Lolita. And I think that it's, I can make the claim that Nabokov was a man without a country, so. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have to talk to you, said Darka in a tight voice. She didn't recognize herself, a lump in her throat. After school, they again sat in the park at the lake, wrapped like fairy tale heroes in a cloud, an air of Shakespearean thunderstorm, a tempest, the sweet sorrow of parting. Effie, flashing eyes full of wobbly tears, passionately assured Darka that the thing with Marinka had happened long ago, implying that it was before her friendship with Darka, that it was all silly and meaningless and didn't matter. And Darka brightened, the sky cleared as though pulled out from under an avalanche. Yet for a while, she still pretended to be offended, partly from an innate sense of form and partly out of an unconscious bartering with Effie for new concessions, new guarantees of undivided and exclusive affection, a scenario which Darka later on inevitably repeated with men, except that with them it was much easier, while Effie was about as supple as Picasso's acrobat, dodging to avoid Darka's onslaught from despairing repentance to a sudden collapse into a complete and trance-like absence and a self-absorption to half-hysterical recitals of poems meant to explain everything that year they buried each other in poetry. Until exhausted by the endless back and forth, Darka heard her own voice cry, forgive me, then sinking to her nylon warmed golden knees, embracing them and at the same time greedily snorting in through tears, their surprising smell of bread. The odors of home reached after long travels. In the bedroom under your parents' door, the light pours, let me fluff up your pillow. The ticklish scent like a kitten's on her hair on your cheek. Two girls cuddling under the covers, hugging each other, whispering, sudden outbursts of laughter. Stop, you're deafening me. Like you, but different. That's what a sister is. That's what I'm embracing tightly, so tightly that it can't be tighter. 
never to let it go. Two wildly intertwined girls on a bench in the park of an evening, her swollen breasts under her school uniform thrust into yours, her lashes tickling your neck like in that myth where the clouds of the gods rendered the lovers invisible to mere mortals. Nobody walked down the path, nobody rustled the fallen leaves. There was nobody to be surprised when Effie began kissing the trail of tears under Darka's eyes and then pressed her lips to hers and gasped. Effie's heart beat inside Darka's chest and both froze, not sure what to do next. And then Darka felt between her lips something quick, wet, salty, and very large. It floated in her mouth like a naked hot fish blacking out the rest of the world. And she did not immediately understand that it was Effie's tongue. But once she did, she was seized by another incomprehensible sort of sobbing, inhaling her tears and Effie's tongue, squeezing the skinny body even tighter, shoulder blades sharp as wings, the keyboard of the vertebrae under the coarse uniform, suddenly brought to memory her first realization of what it meant that someone, something was alive. She was three years old, standing speechless above a basket full of tiny fluffy white rabbits, unable to step aside or turn away until one of the adults said from above, would you like one? She struggled to come to terms with the idea that such an astonishing creature breathed and moved and then with the equally astonishing news of what one could do with such a miracle. One could possess it. At that most honest of ages, possession meant just one thing. It meant that out of an excess of feeling, one could put the thing in one's mouth and swallow it. As one did the petals of the prettiest flowers from the courtyard garden, which you plucked and chewed, your saliva turning bitter and green when you spat. And over the years, that original meaning of the word doesn't change, only gets clouded over. It takes a lifetime to understand that long ago, the grown-ups fooled you. That in fact, nothing living, neither a flower, nor a rabbit, nor a person, nor a country, can in fact be had. They can only be destroyed, which is the one way to confirm they have been possessed. Wow. Zabushka so is in her own league in terms like you forget the world. You're like the, the emotional intricacies of where she takes you in her writing is incredible. And translating that. You know. I know. I must respect her Oscar. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also like to point out that um, that was all one sentence. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I said she was three years old. So the you know, just like, yeah. Oh, the range of work. I mean, it's it's really dizzying, and 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 just such an amazing time. Just looking forward to all this work that's just going to be trickling through in the next few years. So I'm I'm hoping that we we get to do this again sometime in another yeah. context. And and I a really, lot of these authors have books coming out. Yeah. <laughs> so I think yeah, everybody will. Uh, probably be seeing both of you. Um, we have actually run out of time, but I was looking through just trying to see if there are any questions. There's, there's some comments. I think you've, you've both answered you know, most of, of those comments. So I think this might be a good place to, to sort of call it a night, but uh, Ali Kinsella and, and, and Zenia Tompkins, thank you for gracing our virtual halls and, and um, congratulations. Just such an achievement and um, Encourage everybody, please support Ukraine, um, buy a book, proceeds from the book. Also go to, you know, supporting, you know, humanitarian efforts. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So be safe, be well, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you, yeah.
Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.